You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Very good. Welcome back to the last hour of our show. This is Real Presence Live on your Real Presence Radio Network. Coming up on four minutes past the hour. This is my second and last hour. I like to do this for three hours every day. All I really do is sit down and talk. Everybody else does all the work. Karen here getting us on online here in my office at Corpus Christi in Bismarck. Eli, back in his area. Eli, we'll get to you at the, at the end of the hour because uh, this is our last show together. You've had, you've, you put me on the air for, for uh, tens of hours over the last five years, and I'm grateful for that. Eli is moving on to new opportunities, and we wish him well and uh, thank him for all he's done. My next guest is a guest I've been looking forward to. His, his name is Dr. John Kincaid. He's a professor at the University of Mary here in Bismarck, and he's here in my office at the Church of Corpus Christi, Dr. Kincaid, good morning to you. Good morning, Monsignor. And you have your daughter, Evie, here. Evie, good morning to you. Good morning, Monsignor. How old are you? I'm 11 years and old. And what grade are you in? I'm going into seventh grade. Did you pass? Yeah. Where do you go to school? I go to St. Mary's Academy. St. Mary's Academy. Evie Kincaid. So what do you want to say? You're on the air. A big part of the northern part of the United States is listening to you right now. What do you want to say? I want to say that it's just really cool to be here with my dad, who's going to be interviewed about his book, and I think it's going to be really interesting to hear about. Very good. That's excellent. And you guessed my age at 47, <laughs> which was about 10 years younger than what you thought I was. We did that. So you're a diplomat. You look like you're pretty smart. And you're, uh, are you enjoying your summer? I am. All right. Let's move to your dad. All right. I, I, I want I want you I want you to ask your dad the first question, and you're going to say, "Dad, who was Paul?" Dad, who was Paul? Well, Evie, <laughs> Paul was uh, first and foremost a from the tribe of Benjamin, who grew up in Tarsus, and he was a man principally of two overarching worlds. One, he was a Roman citizen and received, by all accounts, a good Hellenistic education. But I think the primary identity for the Apostle Paul was that he was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin and received an excellent formation in the faith of Israel, including, as the Book of Acts says, that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi of the first century A.D. So Paul was a well-educated man, conversant in two worlds, and up to the point of meeting Jesus of Nazareth, alive on the road to Damascus, he was a quite prominent Pharisee, given a particular task, that is to round up and bring to task those who belong to, quote, the way, that is, who would embrace Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah. And then something dramatic happened that changed Paul's thinking on the matter. Something dramatic happened. So let's back up just a bit. Paul is a Jew. He's a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest tribe. That's He's right. a Jew. He is a Jew. He's also a Roman citizen. Yes. And he speaks Greek. Mm-hmm. Yes. How do we know that? Well, his letters are in Greek. So, so he was, he, he was, and, and, and all of the educated spoke Greek. That, that, that was the language of the educated. Yes. 
Uh, and that, that's why the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, right? Correct. Because that, that was the language of the educated to get most bang for the buck. And, and some spoke Latin, of course, too. But the, the language of the people was what we would call so, Koine Greek. So it, it's fair to say one of the reasons why he was called was because Greek was probably his mother tongue or very familiar. Very familiar. He could communicate. Absolutely. But he first, his first act was to destroy the first church. That's what they The Jesus as Messiah movement. And then, and then, uh, uh, I, I think now we know who Paul is. In some ways, he's a Jew in a Gentile world. He's and and how did Paul get in this position to be one of the leading persecutors of this Jesus as Messiah movement? Was this his idea? Was he put up to it? Or did he somehow get irritated by it? Do we know anything about that? We don't know a lot for sure. Um, we can piece together from both the book of Acts and what Paul says in his own letters, including to his letter to the Galatians. And it seems that, from all we can infer, that Paul was deputized with the task to help round up those who were Jews who embraced Jesus uh, as the Messiah. And in light of the fact that he says he was zealous for his heritage, I think we can infer that this was something that Paul took very seriously, namely he, that is Paul, before the road to Damascus, did not think Jesus was Israel's Messiah, and so therefore a significant threat to the quote-unquote the, the faith of Israel at that point, because he would consider Jesus to be a, an imposter, or certainly not the Messiah that they had been looking for, as well as the political upheaval that that brings when you have factions within Israel. So I, I, I think it's safe to say Paul took the threat very seriously until he saw that he was on the wrong side of that battle. He, uh, he, uh, he condoned Stephen's stoning? Correct. Or maybe even was there? It's hard to say for sure. He certainly condoned it. The way Acts puts it, he, he's He's certainly signing off, whether mm-hmm. he saw it directly or not. Is and so yeah. he and he will be stoned as well a- a- after his conversion. He well, there, well, ne- he's killed under Nero, right? Yes. So roughly between sixty four to sixty seven. Yeah. So the persecutor will become the persecuted. Correct. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. So that that's who Paul is. Now let's talk about what happened to him, uh, because th- this this is what. This is the conviction that motivated him to his death because he had a profound faith in our Lord. Obviously, whatever happened to him gave him a profound conviction in the the resurrection. It's narrated three times by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles. Why why does Luke narrate it three times? Well, first is the, in the sequence, it's giving Paul's conversion and Luke is narrating it in Acts 9 uh, in general. The next two times are in Paul's own mouth. So when Paul's giving a defense of himself in two different contexts, Acts 22 and 26, it's Paul's own narration, but Luke is narrating uh, in 9 the actual conversion of Paul to Christ himself. So this happened on the road to Damascus. That's right. So we know usually he's falling off the horse, but there's, right. there's no evidence of a horse. Correct. Right? Uh, but probably he was on a horse, uh, which is, you know, I mean, if I'm on the road to Dickinson... I'm probably in a car. Right. Uh, I'm not going to... But so so we know something happened. Yes. Tell me what happened. Well, on his way to Damascus, he's on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ appears to him. And in such overwhelming glory that Paul is overcome. And he asks, who are you, Lord? And he's 
Jesus responds is Jesus whom you are persecuting, which is an interesting response, right? Because Paul could have responded, which he didn't. Well, I'm persecuting your followers, not persecuting you. But I think Paul learned something very important there on the road to Damascus. That is to persecute the followers is to persecute Mm -hmm. Jesus. And Jesus makes clear you're persecuting me. And then Jesus in so many ways, commissions him from this point forward to go and bring the gospel, both to Jew and to Greek. And in this vision of the risen Christ, Paul's entire life is changed definitively. That is, the one he previously thought was, um, in many ways, maybe an imposter or not the Messiah of Israel. He now knows is the Messiah of Israel because he is alive. So the real game-changing aspect to all of this is that Jesus of Nazareth is resurrected, and as a Pharisee, he believed in the resurrection. So now he sees a resurrected man coming to him. It's almost as if, and I think this is rightly said, a new world had begun. The world that Paul hoped for as a Pharisee is breaking forth into ours, and Jesus is the one who is leading that as its Lord. And from that point on, Paul was a different man, and he reread his own scriptures differently in light of this as the promise now fulfilled it for the people of God. It's hard to deny the resurrection of Jesus after what re, after what happened to St. Paul. Sure. There's no way Paul could have pulled this off, written 13 letters that remain today, becoming a martyr of the church, the great with St. Peter. Um, the, you, you have to say that the resurrected Jesus indeed, indeed appeared to him. Yes, I think so. If, if, if Paul is a reliable witness about what he's seen, and he talks to the Corinthians about this in particular, because at Corinth, there were some who were beginning to think, or some influenced the Corinthians to thinking that the resurrection isn't going to happen, or it isn't a, a staple of the faith, and some were doubting it. And Paul puts everything on the line. In regards to resurrection, he says, if Christ isn't raised, we're still in our sins, our faith is futile. But Christ most definitely has been raised, he says. And why can he say that with such confidence? Well, he saw him on the road to Damascus. Um, After his conversion, Mm -hmm. and in Romans 1, uh, we, we know clearly, Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ. The Greek word for that is doulos, which mm-hmm. means one who is bound. Mm-hmm. He calls. He's, he says he is called and he's set apart for the gospel. Mm-hmm. So he now has this c- clear sense of self that he begins his letter to the Romans with. But my, my, my question for you is, what, what inspired you now to call, to call him... Paul, Paul called himself a slave. He called himself called and he called himself set apart. We're going to take a short break here. You also call him a new covenant Jew. Why? Uh, in, 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 in five seconds, ten seconds before we take a break. He calls this is a soft break. Yeah. And this is Eli's last show. So he'll even, let me, he'll even let me skip the break. You're, right. you're, you're calling him even more than that. You're calling, him a, you're calling him a new covenant Jew. Why? He calls himself a minister of the new covenant. And even after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he still calls himself a Jew. But now something radically different has happened. So he identifies now in 2 Corinthians 3 as a minister of the new covenant. We're going to be back in just one moment. Uh, My guest is Dr. John Kincaid, a professor at the University of Mary. Evie's here as well. She's going to ask a question after the break. His book he co-authored is called Paul, a uh, A New Covenant Jew. 
Uh, he he co-authored this book. And uh, after the break, we're going to get into more about this book. And uh, all of this is very, very fascinating. I love St. Paul. We all love St. Paul. Really the first Christian theologian, the first Catholic theologian. We're coming up on 16 minutes past the hour. We'll be back in just one moment. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. Did you know you can listen to all your favorite local shows like Awaken and Real Presence Live on any podcast platform such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Amazon Music? Just search for Real Presence Radio on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes in the future. And don't forget to give us a good rating so others can discover the shows. Listen to your favorite RPR shows anytime, anywhere by subscribing on any podcast platform. Just search for Real Presence Radio today. Hello, this is Mike Kidrowski, the Director of Advancements for Real Presence Radio with today's Plan Giving Minute. Philanthropy is an expression of your generosity with the understanding that your gift to the church will make a difference. There are many ways in which you can make a gift to further God's work. Most of us are familiar with cash gifts we give regularly to Real Presence Radio. However, another way of contributing is through Plan Giving, which may allow you to give more than you've ever dreamed possible. The goal of plan giving is to help you plan your estate and charitable giving in a way that benefits you, your family, and our mission. There are several ways you can make these planned gifts and enjoy tax and income benefits. For more information, please visit our plan giving website at rprlegacy.org or call me at 701-290-4503. Let's get started. Hi, this is Dr. Ryan Sappo from Lumen Vision in Fargo. Lumen Vision offers vision therapy services for children and adults. Symptoms of poor reading comprehension, headaches, tired eyes, and poor coordination can be indicators of eye movement conditions which affect reading and learning. Eye movement disorders are often undetected by school vision screenings and regular eye exams. For more information about how vision therapy can help treat these conditions, our website is www.lumen.vision. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. All right, thank you. Dr. John Kincaid is my guest. He's a president at the University of Mary here in Bismarck, North Dakota, and he's the co-author of a book entitled Paul, a New Covenant Jew. Uh, Dr. Kincaid, uh, in the last 15 minutes, we described, and people can go back and listen to this. This is uh, on podcast online in perpetuity. Uh, we we described who St. Paul is. Uh, and one other aspect of Paul we must remember is that Paul was a pastor. Mm-hmm. He, he was probably the first pastor of communities. He formed these communities, and when he couldn't visit them regularly, thank God he couldn't. He wrote letters to them. So he has a pastoral heart. Mm-hmm. He's concerned about 
He's concerned about how they're doing. And, and, and so uh, that, let's not forget that in, in who St. Paul is. Now, as we move on to some of the other uh, questions I have for you. I, we, I think we discovered in, in, the, in the 2008 year of, of St. Paul that, that even 2,000 years after his death, Paul incites reactions from, from different people, positive and negative, yes. uh, different reactions of believers and non-believers alike. Uh, and uh, how, how does, how does um, your book, how does this understanding of St. Paul as a New Covenant Jew um, probably help us to unlock some of the difficult aspects of Pauline theology? Yeah. There's a question for you. It is. Our book addresses a number of those. Let me just highlight two. Absolutely. Okay, so historically, particularly since the Reformation, one of the most hotly contested areas in Pauline theology is justification. How is one right with God, um, held to be in the right? And we argue in the book, understanding Paul as a new covenant Jew helps unpack how justification for Paul works. So when we say new covenant, it's not simply the fact that this is now what the church does and believes and is uh, living out of the new covenant. It's rooted in the faith of Israel, in particular, a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah, where he gives God's promise that one day there will be a new covenant, unlike the one at Sinai, where God will, quote, write his law on their hearts. And in that promise, we argue we have a significant insight into how one is made right with the God of Israel. And it's, it's rooted in the faith of Israel, but now here in the New Covenant, the promise comes to pass. That is, one's heart is made upright. And when one has the proper heart condition through faith, they are truly righteous. So we argue for a term called cardiac righteousness that defines or explicates what it means to be justified before God, which then shows a number of things that are often held in tension together. For instance, Paul is clear, you're saved by faith, not works of the law. But on the flip side, he also says, you'll be judged by works. So how do you hold those two things together? With cardiac righteousness, where your heart has been made right by God, God, through his grace, grants the capacity for believers, a comprehensive grace, to both have an upright heart and then do the works that are required as a result. All by grace, but this was a grace foreshadowed in Israel's own text. Let's go back to faith and good works. Sure. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, That's right. quoted to me a lot by non-Catholics. Right. They forget verse 10. Appointed for good works in and, advance, and, right? And, yeah, and so the, the, he, he's re- first referring to the works of the law, that, that you are not saved by works. Mm-hmm. He's referring to the works of the old law. Mm-hmm. But in verse 10 he says, but you have been predestined in Christ for works. Correct. So Paul knows that the cardiac justification, as you say, mm-hmm. has to manifest itself in action. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And that's where that seeing the new covenant vision helps because this was what was promised all along. If you look at when things went poorly in Israel's history, so often, in the, particularly in the historical books, what's narrated is Israel has a corporate heart problem. So the, the problem isn't the law. The, the problem is the human heart condition, particularly in Israel. So if God's going to finally solve the problem, it's going to be a, at the level of the heart. Uh, Dr. John Kincaid is my guest. We're talking about his new book entitled Paul, A New covenant Jew. And we're, we're visiting in, in these minutes about how this understanding of St. Paul as a new covenant Jew helps us unlock some of the difficult aspects of Pauline 
theology, some of the, what what are, what are, what's another aspect? Well, here's another one. So more recently, Pauline debates have turned on what it means to be in Christ. What's participation in Christ mean? So in the last 40 years, lots of manuscripts have been written about this. And again, new covenant helps unpack what being in Christ means. It means first being in the new covenant which then shows that, well, where is that new covenant? That new covenant is lived and celebrated in the church established by Jesus Christ, number one. That leads, number two, to the heart of participation, meaning the sacraments for Paul. Baptism is the entryway, as is clear in the way he speaks, because in Colossians he talks about baptism as the circumcision of Christ, which, in that respect, is seen against the backdrop of circumcision, the right of entry into the covenant, but now it's baptism that is that entryway, but it's a radical uh, activity in baptism that you die and rise with Christ, and and in that process you are brought into the life of the new covenant, and this all leads to the Eucharist itself, because some scholars will point out Paul doesn't talk about the Eucharist a great deal, but what he does say about it is incredibly significant. What he says in 1 Corinthians 10 is that because we have one bread, we who are many are made one body and have Greek koinonia, participation in the body of Christ. And one cup, over the many, we have koinonia with the blood of Christ. That participation that we have, that really quest for what it means to be in Christ, I think for Paul, climaxes in the Eucharist, which is lo and behold, he says, is the cup of the new covenant. So Paul's new covenant theology climaxes in a Eucharistic account. So um, how, how has your work, and I, I know Pope Benedict XVI made great strides in ecumenism Absolutely. Uh, using St. Paul. Um, St. Paul has become a point of division Mm-hmm. Where, where really, um, St. Paul has to unite us. Correct. If we're going to be united. Absolutely. He's written f- almost 50% of the, of the New Testament. So, so, so how does your book help uh, in, in, in ecumenical discussions about the writings of St. Paul? Well, it, it, it does a number of things. Number one, it shows that, as we do in the book, we quote a lot of Protestant scholars who are doing excellent work in Paul, which highlights so much of the common ground we have. It's not only where we disagree. There's lots of agreement that's very important, and Paul is precious common ground. But then even then, we can then be clear next step about where we disagree. But in that agreement and disagreement, we are coming back to Paul and saying, first and foremost, it's crucial to get Paul right on his own terms. And if we're able to get Paul right, then we know exactly not just where the agreement and disagreement lies ecumenically, but what's the truth of the matter. And Paul, while not a systematic theologian like Augustine or Aquinas, is a coherent, consistent thinker, such that if you can really get inside what Paul's saying, it has massive ecumenical implications in driving us closer to unity, even when there are areas that we still disagree. If Paul was sitting in here, what would his personality be like? He would be, I think, a combination of gentle, more gentle than people realize, because he says he's firm in his letters. He's accused of being firm in his letters, but gentle in his appearance. So as you were mentioning, Monsignor, he had a pastor's heart. I I think that people would be surprised at how gentle and pastoral. But when there were important matters to be discussed, he could also be quite forceful, right, as you see in the letters. So he was a a pastor's heart, but also he knew as a shepherd how to protect the sheep. And he writes about a cross he carries, a difficulty he has. I, I, I'm not the ex. I think he wanted to give it away, but he knows he has to 
carry it? Mm-hmm. What, what, what was his cross? Scholars debate what that, quote, thorn in the thorn, flesh. Thorn yeah. in the flesh. That's right. Uh, I, I don't have a particular take. Uh, some have postulated it had to do with an eye condition. So we see in Paul's letter to the Galatians that he says you would have, he says to the Galatians, you would have torn out your eyes uh, for me to help me. So some postulate maybe he was having eye problems or maybe migraines, and so this was a thorn in the flesh. Others have postulated it's resistance that he clearly got all throughout his missionary journeys, including uh, at, in Galatia in particular, where he had uh, a number of controversies. So it's hard to pinpoint for sure, and God willing, one day I want to ask him, you know, what did you mean by that? His missionary journeys you, you, you mentioned, there are four of them. Three we know for sure, likely a fourth after his release. Uh, yeah. And and his, his first one was was kind of in his in his own neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? It was uh, it involved Tarsus, right, mm-hmm. where he was from, and it was uh, there were Roman colonies in the area, so it was kind of a good trial for him. The 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 second one was uh, imagine imagine traveling on a ship yeah. during these days, and how you would have had to perhaps barter yourself through different tribal, difficult, dangerous territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, his last trip was to Rome, probably, right? He may, We know from the Book of Acts he ends up in Rome, around 60-ish A.D., awaiting trial before Caesar. Uh, I think the best position is, is he survives that and conducts more work, including perhaps a fourth missionary journey afterwards. And then eventually, when he writes Second Timothy, it's clear his death is upon him. That, that's his last book. That's correct. And and uh, his first book is most scholars think First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, and so Second Timothy is a great is is great for funerals. It is. Uh, I, I've I've competed well. I've run the race. I've fought the fight. I've kept the faith. He talks about the crown he hopes he hopes to achieve. Now he wasn't crucified because he was Roman, right? Tell us about his death. We don't know a lot for sure about his death. We, there's, a, there's a number of accounts that are out there. We know, broadly speaking, we think somewhere between 62 and 67, probably towards the back end, during the time when Nero was upping his persecution. And some think that Peter and Paul were martyred roughly around the same period in Rome, so somewhere in the middle of the 60s. Dr. John Kincaid, thank you for being on my show. Oh, it's my pleasure. From the University of Mary. The book is called Paul, a New Covenant Jew. How do they get the book? You can get it on Amazon or any online seller or from Erdman's, the publisher, on their website. Evie, your job this summer is to have fun. Sounds good. Thanks for being on my show. You can come back. You can come back anytime. Okay? Okay. Come back and let us know how seventh grade is at the academy. Okay. Okay? And Father Logan Obergaywich, the new priest who's going to live with me here, once he's ordained, he's going to work at the academy. Oh. Okay? And so you can, you're going to know him, too. Sounds okay? good. All right. We're going to be back in just one moment. We come up on 31 minutes past the hour. Don't go anywhere. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. 